0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a surgeon explains how pancreatic cancer is typically discovered and the options available
1: for treatment. Yes, many patients who have advanced pancreatic cancer uh, can look healthy as the symptoms don't occur until the disease is quite progressed.
0: A pediatrician and child abuse expert tells about the
2: role of the McMahon Ryan Child Advocacy Center in Syracuse. I'm always surprised at the statistics and At the Advocacy Center itself, we had um, over 1,500 children in 2018. And a gynecologist
0: veterinarian talks about cancers during pregnancy in humans and animals. You know, I always say
3: that in veterinary school, we had to learn all species but one. And in
0: medical school, all we had to do
3: was learn one species.
0: All that plus a selection from The Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's Health Link on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical university. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today we'll hear about the McMahon Ryan Child Advocacy Center from its medical director, a professor of pediatrics at Upstate who is an expert in child abuse. Then we'll explore cancer during pregnancy with a gynecologist who began her career as a veterinarian. But first, we'll learn about what happens when a person discovers he or she has pancreatic cancer. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Pancreatic cancer is in the news with the announcement by longtime Jeopardy host Alex Trebek that he was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. Here in the HealthLink on Air studio with me to talk about pancreatic cancer is Upstate surgical oncologist Dr. Michelle Deheer. Well, thank you for being here. So what struck me about Alex Trebek's announcement is that he looked so healthy when he made it. Is that typical of someone with a diagnosis like his? Do they look healthy?
1: Yes. Many patients uh, who have advanced pancreatic cancer uh, can look healthy as the symptoms don't occur until the disease is quite progressed. Okay. Okay. So it's not unusual, but a lot of patients do have symptoms as well at the time of presentation.
0: So let's talk about the outlook for someone with a diagnosis of stage 4 pancreatic cancer. What does stage 4 mean?
1: Stage 4 typically means that uh, the cancer has spread to other organs outside the pancreas. Most commonly, liver, the lining of the intestine called peritoneum, uh, or lungs or other, other parts of the body.
0: And I'm assuming there's, f- are there four stages? Yes, there so are
1: four stages, you know, one through four, and four is the most advanced stage.
0: Okay. Now, the ca- this cancer, pancreatic cancer, apparently strikes about 55,000 people a year in the United States, accounting for 3% of all cancers, but 7% of all cancer deaths. So it's it's got some pretty bad statistics.
1: Yes, it is a... Um, aggressive cancer, but uh, there are options um, which can help patients. But in general, you know, at, at Upstate, uh, we understand it as a aggressive disease and we treat it as such.
0: And it can be treated and we're definitely going to talk about that. But let's start with um, just some basics on what, what is the pancreas? What does it do for
1: us in our bodies? Pancreas um, is, is a In simple words a digestive organ it makes juices which help break down food Um, it has two functions one like I said uh, breakdown of food especially fatty foods and some proteins and the second function is what we say the endocrine function where it pertains to control of blood sugars and uh, so forth so it helps control blood sugars and it helps digest the food
0: and it's it's essential we yeah. we all have it and we all need a pancreas right
1: yes yes but it is it is life without pancreas is possible with, in in today's day day and age but I mean, everybody ha- has the pancreas
0: so if you have uh, cancer in the pancreas um what does it do to the organ does it does it prevent it from making those digestive juices and things or or is it an obstruction?
1: Or what does it do? When we talk about pancreas cancer, most commonly we talk about the adenocarcinoma, which is the garden variety pancreas cancer. And it, uh, as an organ, pancreas has a lot of cells and it has a main duct, which delivers those juices to the intestine. So most of these pancreas cancer arise within the duct of the pancreas. And when they arise in that duct, they sort of cause blockage of that duct, which over a period of time can cause the organ to shrink, and, um, and that can, in, in a way, cause pain as well as new onset diabetes and, and, and so forth. Do we know what causes
0: cancer to develop there in the
1: pancreas? For most of my patients, you know, it is, it is what we say, bad luck. But mm-hmm. there are some some uh, risk factors such as smoking, history of pancreatitis, um, obesity is one of the risk factors, new onset diabetes after the age of uh, 50, but... Uh, There is no unique risk factors. Someone who has significant family history can also be at risk, especially if they have breast and ovarian cancers, because they can be linked to certain uh, genetic syndromes. But in general, there is no specific risk factor um, that we have identified for pancreas cancers. And over half of the patients may not have identifiable risk factor.
0: So I heard you mention um, pancreatitis and diabetes. Those are um, diseases that a lot of people have. Yes. Is there anything people with those diseases can do to reduce their risk of of pancreatic cancer?
1: Not uh, typically, uh, but uh, we, we have a comprehensive uh, program for benign diseases of the pancreas as well. If somebody has sequelae of pancreatitis, we recommend that they undergo long-term follow-up, especially if they have a condition called chronic pancreatitis, because that means ongoing damage to the pancreas in those patients. So we recommend long-term follow-up for those patients. Not everybody with diabetes is at risk for pancreas cancer, and uh, but, but in, in some unusual situations, if there's a late-onset diabetes without previous known risk factors, those are the patients uh, who need to be looked at more carefully as to what may be bringing um, this diabetes if they don't have any other risk factors for it.
0: And so by following up closely, you would be on top of it if if something starts
1: developing. Especially in patients with pancreatitis, because in those patients, typically we do CT scans periodically um, for the long-term follow-up. For the diabetes, it's not as clear how, uh, how you could identify uh, pancreas cancer if it was to uh, develop. But if there's an unusual situation where a patient has no risk factors and they just present with diabetes um, and they're over 50 years of age, in that case, a physician could think, could this be linked to a pancreas mass or, or pancreas cancer and could order additional scans. But there is no standard protocol at this point.
0: This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with pancreatic cancer surgeon, Dr. Michelle Dahir, uh, about pancreatic cancer. So I want to ask you about screening tests for pancreatic cancer. Is there any
1: way to screen for the disease? In general, um... We don't have standard screening for pancreatic cancer as we have for breast cancer and colon cancer. But at Upstate, we have a familial pancreatic cancer pathway where we look at if somebody has risk factors, which includes two or more first-degree relatives or if they have a known genetic syndrome and so forth. And, and if they meet all the criteria, then we enter them into our screening protocol. Uh, but this is only a small subset of patients who are deemed high risk for pancreatic cancer but don't yet have the disease. Uh,
0: what does the screening consist of? Is it a, is it a blood test?
1: in ge- in general we start with the mri to get a good picture of the pancreas and then we decide based on that some patients may need additional tests like an endoscopic ultrasound where a gastroenterologist puts an ultrasound right on the pancreas through the stomach and so forth so but in general we start with a mri of the pancreas as a as a baseline examination in these patients
0: How do most people discover that they have pancreatic cancer? Are there signs or symptoms that they become aware of?
1: Uh, Yes, um, but unfortunately, um, many times the the signs and symptoms don't occur until the disease is advanced. But um, one of the early signs can be development of jaundice, especially if uh, the tumor is located in the head of the pancreas. Um, Jaundice usually means just yellowing of your skin and dark coloration of your urine um, because it blocks one of the liver ducts which goes through the head of the pancreas. Other symptoms are fairly nonspecific, such as pain. It can be belly pain or back pain, loss of appetite, unexplained weight loss, um, and, and And so forth, so there are no specific symptoms, but jaundice is something which can bring some tumors located in the head of the pancreas to early uh, detection. And some of the patients get scans for something else and may have a spot. Detected on their pancreas, so that's that's another way we sometimes see patients with early pancreatic cancer.
0: So they go for something else, and
1: they are found to have a, have a mass on their pancreas.
0: Wow. Well, let's talk uh, about treatment. Um, when it, if it's advanced, usually when it's discovered, is there anything that you can do surgically if someone has advanced pancreatic cancer?
1: Yeah, you know, advanced can can mean that it has spread to other organs, or it could mean uh, that it's it's just located within the pancreas, but uh, it's involving the essential blood vessels and uh, surgery is not an option yet. So it all depends on the stage. So first thing is to have appropriate staging, which usually includes a good quality CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis to see how this tumor is located uh, where is where it's located and how it's related to the blood vessels surrounding the pancreas and Once we have the appropriate staging, then we make a treatment plan in our multidisciplinary team and the the treatment typically uh, includes three things: surgery, if the patient is a candidate. It could be upfront or it could be after a period of chemotherapy upfront where surgery is sandwiched between chemotherapy. Sweet. And then the okay. other uh, option is radiation. So, typically uh, for advanced cancer, surgery is not an option. Spe- if it has spread to other organs, then surgery uh, is usually not an option for those patients.
0: But if it's confined to the confined organ. the
1: pancreas. Then as a surgeon, we think of it in, as, as three stages. One is resectable. That means, you know, it can be removed and... Uh, In those cases, surgery can be performed up front. And even in those cases, patients may receive chemotherapy up front and then get surgery afterwards. The second is borderline resectable. That means we could resect, but it's an involved surgery. And uh, giving chemotherapy up front may lead to shrinkage of this tumor and make the surgery more effective. And patients may need some additional chemotherapy at the back end as well with or without radiation. And sometimes radiation is also uh, given before surgery. And the third is locally advanced, unresectable. This is also considered an advanced pancreas cancer, but just it hasn't spread to other organs, but it's involving some of the essential blood vessels which cannot be removed. So in that case, we start with chemotherapy, patients may need radiation and a small subset may become candidates for surgery
0: when you say um, resectable do you it, are you taking out just the part of the where the cancer is contained or do you remove the whole organ
1: typically we remove the part of the organ where the cancer is uh, is, is contained, and the goal of surgery is to achieve negative margins and remove some of the lymph nodes which live in the vicinity. But in a subset of patients, the cancer may be involving the pancreas as such that they may, re- they may need complete removal of the organ, which is, which is also possible to do surgically. Um, but vast majority of the times, we just remove the part of, part of the organ which is involved by the cancer as long as we are able to achieve negative margins.
0: And then the part of the organ that's left behind still functions?
1: It still functions. uh, uh, Depends on how healthy it is. And uh, patients may need some support to maintain their blood sugars and to help digest the food after the surgery.
0: Uh, As I prepared for this interview, I I looked and uh, was a little surprised to find thousands of clinical trials set up dealing with pancreatic cancer. And I didn't look into exactly what they were um, testing, but I wanted to ask you, are there new treatments on the horizon or new ways of doing things for people with pancreatic cancer?
1: No, absolutely. Um, And each of these treatment options, such as surgery, uh, radiation therapy, and chemotherapy, are evolving. Radiation is more effective these days. It can be customized to the organ and there are short term and long term protocols which are being studied. And so for chemotherapy as well, we have more effective chemotherapy now that we had 10 years ago and more and more chemotherapy options are being explored. And immunotherapy's role is also being explored for pancreas cancer, and a small subset of patients may be candidates for immunotherapy as well. So I think um, it's being increasingly recognized that it's a challenging disease, and we need to do more to overcome this.
0: Well, that's very hopeful. That it sounds like there is a lot being done or looked at. So correct. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate the information. My guest has been a uh, pancreatic cancer surgeon, Dr. Michelle Deheer. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink On Air, the Syracuse agency that helps children who have been abused. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Springtime in Syracuse means tulips and also blue pinwheels placed by the McMahon Ryan Child Advocacy Center to raise awareness for child abuse prevention. Here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about her role as the medical director for the center is Dr. Ann Botash. She's a professor of pediatrics at Upstate and the director of the Child Abuse Referral and Evaluation
2: Program. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Now, your role as medical director at McMahon, Ryan, it seems to go with your role as director of child abuse referral and evaluation program at Upstate. Can you talk about what your responsibilities are, how
2: those interact? Sure. So the, the child abuse referral and evaluation, actually the care program is easier to say, started back in the uh, 1990s uh, as a just a, a medical group who were mainly interested in taking care of kids who were abused. And that's really the upstate kind of component. That's our team, our our medical team, and uh, the, the medical directorship of the Advocacy Center, which is actually co-directed uh, by myself and Dr. Pekarski. Is really more of the kind of outward facing we work with the me- the medical uh, piece for the ad- for the advocacy center for McMahon Ryan Child Advocacy Center, and so that has more uh, administrative roles within the advocacy center, um, participating in um, case reviews, meetings, those kinds of things, helping with um, other uh, aspects of uh, advocating for kids and and what they need that you know kids that have been abused. How big of a problem is uh, child abuse in Syracuse? It's actually quite a, a large problem. Um, I um, I think I'm always surprised at the statistics. And at the advocacy center itself, we had um, over 1,500 uh, children in 2018. And um, in the county, we have um, close to 9,000 hotlines and court-ordered uh, investigations of child abuse Um last year. So 9000 Yeah, it's like 89 something. Wow. So, yes. Wow. Now, when we
0: talk about abuse, what what it, that encompasses, that could encompass a lot of different things,
2: right? Yeah, and and actually um, you know, we think of them all as, as separate But oftentimes they're really interrelated that kids who are physically abused often are also emotionally abused. Sexual abuse often goes with emotional abuse but can also go with physical abuse. So there's categories of abuse like that that you can divide things up and say, well, this child was neglected. But often a child who's neglected is also abused in other ways.
0: And so these hotline, these are phone calls. Are they they from... Um, kids who are abused? Are they from neighbors who think they see some abuse happening? Are they from parents? All, they all of from? those things. Oh, really? All, all okay. of those
2: things. So it's usually um, someone who observes something. So it can be anyone in the community. There's a separate phone uh, number for mandated reporters. There are many people in our community who are mandated to report when they suspect abuse. And, and those are usually um, people who work with children in some way. So they're licensed in New York State um, to do something with kids. So um, doctors Te- teachers? teachers, yeah.
0: Okay. Yes. All right. Um, let's talk about the age range of the victims. And we're talking about child abuse, but it, so is that all under 18? Or do- That's
2: that's our criteria for a child under 18. Most of the kids that we see, though, are between the ages of really babies, zero to six years old. That's the, the majority of the children we see. Wow. So really,
0: uh, the age where they need an advocate. So, I mean, they can't really speak for themselves at at that young age.
2: I think it's, um, I think those are the kids where we are picking up that they've been abused, but we also see a lot of kids um, that are teenagers that um, have disclosed themselves, you know, to someone. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the younger kids don't speak about it. Sometimes we pick things up, though, like behaviors or, um, you know, see an injury or notice that a child isn't growing as well. Um, and the older children, the adolescents, don't come for medical care as often as we would like, so we don't necessarily see things. Um, and, you know, they're not showing us <laughs> their findings <laughs> or their signs or symptoms, but they're disclosing. And so those are the kids that we see. And we're, and actually, a large number of the kids that we see are the the group of um, trafficked um, teenagers, so that wow. the advocacy center does serve that population as well.
0: Uh, I want to talk to you about what services McMahon Ryan offers to help victims of abuse and neglect. What what sorts of things? Uh, does the agency provide?
2: So the the nice thing about the advocacy center and the reason that it exists is that the county services and um, the the community services that work with children who have been suspected of abuse are all working together as a team. So we have um, we have the police uh, from the city and we have the sheriff's department. We have the DA's office. We have um, basically all the victim services. So we have child protective services, we have the sexual abuse unit for child protective services. And we have um Vera House and we have uh, therapists from Vera House. So um and we have um advocates through McMahon Ryan and I'm sure I'm forgetting someone, but there's there's a large group of, of people uh from the community and when someone comes to the house um if they come directly to the center and they um are you know disclosing or are there's a suspicion of abuse? They meet with an advocate who then serves as a case manager and walks them through what will be happening um, for the rest of the investigation and then the treatment services. And we're all in the same building, so all of that can take place in the same building, not necessarily at the same time, but in the same building. And um, we, you know, the services that we have are really very. Um, unique to this particular population. So we have rooms where we can do interviews and have those be observed from outside of the room. We have exam rooms that are really very um, nice. They're large. There's enough room for, you know, one or two family members to be in there with a child. We have... um, Equipment like the colposcope that uh, isn't really something that's used in a regular medical exam, but is used for forensic purposes so we can take photographs. Um, We have large areas for waiting and play (laughs) for kids, and we have um, therapy rooms that are really, um, it's all for kids, so it's all um, designed for children.
0: Great. Uh, this is Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith. Uh, I'm talking with Dr. Ann Botash. She's a professor of pediatrics at Upstate and the medical director for the McMahon Ryan Child Advocacy Center. So I wanted to get your advice for if, if there's someone listening um, who's maybe a friend or a neighbor, uh, someone who thinks maybe they've spotted a child who's abused or neglected. What are some of the signs or symptoms that that person would be looking for, and and then what do they do with their suspicions?
2: So, it, you know, it, it depends on on a lot of things. It depends on the age of the child, what symptoms you might be looking for, and it depends on the child's personality themselves. There might be um, something that one child might be more likely to tell about abuse, and another child would be much less likely to tell, and. Yeah, I think it's important for adults to realize that most of the time kids do not tell. So even if you ask them, they oftentimes do not tell that they've been abused, particularly for sexual abuse. Um, and some of that is just that children don't necessarily understand that something happened to them that was wrong. Um, and And trying to process that, a child trying to process that can be Um, Hard because then they feel like they did something wrong and then they may not tell you because of that. They may not tell you because they don't want to hurt you or bother you or all sorts of reasons. So I I think, you know, besides the signs and symptoms, just understanding that there isn't necessarily going to be... um, a disclosure. So beyond that, when you have a child who's, um, for example, neglected, you might just see unusual behaviors like unusual eating behaviors, unusual dress. Um, you know, some of the real severe signs might be a child who's not gaining weight. Um, child who's not growing well or not, and they may be speech delayed. And and all those things can be related to other reasons. So it's, I think it's really hard as an observer. But if you see a change, so if you see a change in behavior, you see a child who was normally really outgoing, and then suddenly they're really withdrawn, you might start thinking about emotional abuse or neglect. Um, Physical abuse tends to be hidden too. So, you know, kids will wear clothes that cover themselves up where there's been a abuse, or they'll be covered with clothes that cover up a a bruise. Um, But physical abuse also presents as some of those behavior changes. So I think for people that work with children, those might be things to think about. And it um, it is harder sometimes even for the parent to recognize abuse in their own child. They might just, you know, attribute these behavior changes to, oh, they had a tough day at school or something like that. But I think, you know, opportunities like this on the air to raise awareness so that people think about abuse, that this is, maybe it's just something just to keep in your mind that it could happen. And and then ask the questions open-ended to, to your child and just see what they say. And if you have a concern at all, you can call the Advocacy Center and there are people ready to answer. Are the perpetrators, um, well, who are the perpetrators? Are they parents? Are they... Unfortunately, a lot of the perpetrators are parents. And actually, I would say the majority, more than 70, 75 percent are parents of the of the kids that we see uh, through the advocacy center. So they're not necessarily the parents they live with. Um, They can be, um, you know, one parent may not know that the other parent is abusing the child. Um, Rarely it's both parents. Uh, Usually it's one or the other and it's usually devastating to the family when this information comes out because now we have a family that, you know, used to think that they were happily <laughs> ever right. after living together and and now they find out that something terrible has been going on all along.
0: Wow. Well, uh, what should a person do um, if they suspect, if you're a parent and you suspect abuse of your child by maybe the other parent, um, do you just get go to... The McMahon Ryan Child Advocacy Center for help, or
2: um, I I think there's a lot of different opportunities for people to call. I I would call the hotline first, which is the county um, hotline here. We have a state hotline um, number that would be called, and we have uh, county agencies that can help. Definitely can call the advocacy center um, as well, and we can uh, help to point you in the in the next you know what the next steps are. So just so listeners know, the the New York State Child Abuse
0: Hotline is 1-800-342-3720. How did you become involved in taking care of kids who who were abused? You went to medical school and became a pediatrician, but how did you get involved in helping?
2: So that's an interesting story. (laughs) I I did not grow up always wanting to be a child abuse pediatrician. In fact, there was not such a thing, really, when I became a pediatrician. I became a pediatrician because I like to work with kids, and I, I found that you know they're the most fun to work with. They're almost always happy, and they almost always get better. So it's a nice group. And I, somewhere along the way, started seeing um, a lot of abused children in our pediatric clinic at Upstate, Before it was Galasano, And um, once you start in the field, I think it's really hard to, uh, most people that I know that are, you know, my age working in this, once they start, it's really hard not to become engrossed in how to help these children because there's so many ways that you can help them. And it's so, um, it's actually very uh, satisfying to really help a child who's been abused or whose family really needs help and they want to help their child I, I really can't explain it any other way there are a lot of um, uh, different ways that child abuse presents too and so as a sort of a science person that's how you become a doctor you know you study a lot of science you start thinking about all the uh, you know if this then that okay so you start looking into well you know this child's presentation, they've got this finding or that finding, what could it possibly be? And it it becomes uh, a little puzzle that you have to put together at the end. And sometimes it's not abuse. Sometimes it's actually a medical, you know, mm. situation or disease or um, something that was untreated. I mean, there are some rashes that make you think that a child's been abused and, and no, it's not. <laughs> so those are always fun too, when you can make a medical di- diagnosis that's treatable and, you know, everybody goes home happy. But also I think we have, you know, we've had some kids, uh, some children um, who change the way you think about the world. You know, they come in and they're, they're so strong. They've been through a lot and they're still happy and they still see things um, with a child's eye. You know, they, they'll say things like, well, you know, I don't know why my dad did this. And and you're like, yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> but now you're in this nice foster home and people are taking care of you. And, and they, you see them actually learn something new about how life can be. And it's just, it's amazing.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that information. My guest has been Medical Director with the McMahon-Ryan Child Advocacy Center and Upstate Professor of Pediatrics, Dr. Ann Botash. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, cancer and pregnancy. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio today is Dr. Molly Brewer, who graduated from medical school at Upstate. She's a gynecologic oncologist and also a veterinarian. She's on the Upstate campus to give a lecture, and I want to thank her for making time for HealthLink on Air. My pleasure. So, you have an, uh, an interesting background. Did you always intend to go to medical school, or was that something you decided on during veterinary school? Well, actually, I went to veterinary school because
3: I wanted to be a horse trainer. And horse trainers, they wouldn't let women be horse trainers when I was growing up. And so I went to veterinary school to work on horses. And it turns out I worked on a few horses, but I worked more on cows. And then after a few years of being a veterinarian, I moved to strictly small animal. And in the process of doing that, I decided I really loved medicine. And as I learned more and more about medicine... I started to hit walls in terms of what you could do with animals because there's an economic reality to animals that we don't see so much with people. And so I started thinking about medical school and I thought, oh my gosh, I can't do that. And then, you know, I said, well, why not? So I applied to medical school and the first year I applied, I did not get in. And so I said, oh, well, let's rethink this. So the second time I applied to medical school, I probably did a better job and the interesting thing is I came to Upstate and I met with the he was the dean of student affairs at the time Gino Andriata. he's since retired and he really encouraged me and that's that was so I'm I have you know a really warm place in my heart for Upstate and then I ended up coming here to school because I just I loved Gino Andriata.
0: Well, so you've got a comparison of veterinary school and medical school. How do they compare? Um, Well, you know,
3: I always say that in veterinary school, we had to learn all species but one. And in medical school, all we had to do was learn one species. But I think it's much more complicated in medicine today um, because there's so much more we can do. And it's complicated with animals because there's more you can do, but not as much. Because, again, there's an economic limitation.
0: But having that background, um, did it help you in anatomy and physiology and learning some of the basics in medical school? Did it help to have done some of those basics with other species? Absolutely. Okay. And
3: what it it really taught me is it taught me what I needed to know Um, because I I didn't learn enough in veterinary school. And so I went to medical school, I knew that I
0: really needed to work hard. So yeah, it helped me a lot. Well, I saw that you've been involved in research recently um, having to do with ovarian cancer. Is that a disease that affects animals as well as humans? Not really. You know,
3: there is a description. Some of the rhesus monkeys will develop as they age, will develop ovarian cancer. Some of the chimps, but it's fairly rare. Um, And most of the time in the lab, we don't have those older animals to study. So really, humans are our model. What we do is we take the disease in humans, and then we go back and try to develop an animal model. But that's been pretty tricky. But a lot of your research is focused on cancer um, in pregnancy, right? A lot of my, really my research has been focused on ovary cancer. Okay. Um, and ovary cancer in pregnancy is pretty rare. Clinically, what I've done is I've, I've written some articles. I've done some podcasts on cancer in pregnancy. So it's, it's an interest of mine because people think that you can't treat cancer in pregnancy. And in fact, you can treat most cancers in pregnancy and have the mom go ahead and deliver a viable, a viable infant.
0: Oh, that's encouraging. Yeah, it's
3: very encouraging.
0: Now, cancer in pregnancy, does that happen that often?
3: It's more common than people realize. And there's two things. One is we're better diagnostically. And second is, as women are older, when they start to have children for a multitude of reasons, we're seeing an increase in cancer in pregnancy, absolutely.
0: Now, are these women that had um, cancer before they got pregnant and maybe didn't know it, or are these cancers that develop um, after the woman's pregnant? Probably both. Oh, are they treated the same,
3: or? Well, it depends on where they are in their pregnancy. So in the first trimester of pregnancy, when organs develop, there's a lot of things we can't do. We can't give chemotherapy, we can give it, but it's it's pretty pretty devastating to the to the fetus. We can't give radiation, um, so there's a number of treatments that we can't do at certain points in pregnancy. But for example, when a woman if a woman develops breast cancer, which is one of the common cancers we see in pregnancy, um, they can have their operation done if it's a surgical if it's a surgical treatment, and then we usually wait till the second trimester to start chemotherapy. But they can get their they can get most of the chemotherapy agents, not all of them, um, and then we usually stop chemotherapy a month before delivery, because otherwise the the baby will
0: be immunosuppressed at the time of delivery. Ah, okay. Now the baby, if you're giving chemo in the second trimester, the baby's getting that too, right? Correct.
3: Correct. Yeah. yeah. And so the major thing that we see is we either see early pregnancy loss when we see cancer in pregnancy, particularly with things like the leukemias. Um, Many of those women will actually abort spontaneously because of leukemia. Um, And if we give chemotherapy in the early first trimester, they will often abort. Um, That's a disease that we can't wait in terms of chemotherapy. We have to treat them because it's such an aggressive disease. If we're talking about giving chemotherapy in the second trimester, The main side effect that we see is what we call IUGR. In other words, these are small babies.
0: IUGR. Intrauterine
3: growth retardation. Oh, okay. Um, And that's
0: fairly common if they've gotten chemotherapy. Are there some cancers, though? I mean, you hear about cancers that are slow growing versus aggressive. Are there slow growing cancers that um, emerge during pregnancy that you don't have to treat, that you can wait? Oh, yeah, absolutely.
3: Um, you know, one of the things that we do with a lot of the cervix cancers that we see is we watch them during pregnancy. And many times we'll deliver them a little bit early so we can treat the cancer. But it's not, it's, that's not a cancer that can be treated during pregnancy because we will lose most of the time the woman will miscarry.
0: So if cancer is diagnosed during pregnancy, it's likely, unless you don't have to do anything, it, um, it's the treatment is likely to have some sort of an impact on, on the baby, right? Sure. So what are some of the things that, uh, do we know what would happen um, to a baby long-term, short-term, if the mother was treated for cancer during their gestation?
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on when they're treated. That's the key. So if they're treated during the time that they're developing organs, often they will spontaneously miscarry or they will have severe um, birth defects. But that's really in the first probably 10 weeks of pregnancy. After that, the major side effect we see is growth retardation, a little bit of small babies. Um, If you deliver these babies within a month of chemotherapy, they will have what we call neutropenia or low blood counts. Because the chemotherapy does cross the placenta. But otherwise these babies, they followed these babies for years and they're um, you know, they have the same IQs as their non- chemotherapy treated babies. They don't seem to really have any side effects, which is kind of interesting.
0: That's encouraging that long term. Oh they're very not. encouraging. Wow. Well, let me ask you this, Is it possible for a woman to undergo chemo? And then safely give birth sometime afterward. Like if she had chemo uh, in her twenties and then it desi- gets pregnant in her thirties, does having had chemo before affect her ability to, you know, carry a baby? Well, it may affect her ability to get pregnant. Okay, because
3: chemotherapy actually is toxic to the eggs, depending on where they are in their in their maturation cycle. So if you give chemotherapy to a twenty year old, for example, say she has lymphoma. So they give pretty aggressive chemotherapy for lymphoma. One of the things that we're now doing is we're now either harvesting eggs on those women and freezing them, uh-huh. or there's some experimental work being done where they harvest part of their ovary, freeze it, and then put it back in the in in the patient. Um, because part of what we see is early menopause. That's one of the side effects of many of these chemotherapies. And so if a woman is 31 and she got aggressive chemotherapy in her 20s, she may go into early menopause. Huh. So, part of what we're now doing is counseling these women um, that there are options before they start chemotherapy in terms of preserving their fertility.
0: Interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Molly Brewer. She's a medical doctor and a doctor of veterinary medicine, and she specializes in gynecologic oncology. She's at Upstate to give a lecture, and we're grateful she agreed to speak with HealthLink on Air. So, are there things that we've learned from veterinary medicine that have shaped the practice of human gynecology?
3: Absolutely. I think, particularly in cattle and horses, um, assisted reproductive therapy was done much earlier in both of those species. In livestock? Absolutely. Absolutely. High producing dairy cows, um, they would actually superovulate them. They would um, harvest the eggs, inseminate them, and they would put them into heifers that were not worth it very much. Huh. And so they then so this super this super producing cow could then have five offspring in one year as opposed to one. So that's and, and you know that's what we do now in women, but we were way ahead of it in veterinary medicine, and the same is true of mares. You know, there's a lot of artificial insemination that's done depending on the breed. Some breeds don't allow it, but that was long before we did artificial insemination in in people.
0: Now, the gestation is totally different in animals, right, than humans? Correct. Um, Humans is 10 months? They say nine nine, months, but it's 40 weeks. Well,
3: yeah, 38 to 40 weeks. 38 to 40 weeks. Yeah. And the gestation is longer. Mares are about 11 months, and cows are about the same.
0: Huh. Are there, can you talk about some of the um, complications that we see in humans versus in animals? Do we see the same sorts of risks um, at preterm labor or um, diabetes during pregnancy? Do we see some of the same things in animals as humans? Not exactly. I mean, one of
3: the things that you sometimes will see in these particularly high producing dairy cows, um, they'll have pregnancy loss. Sometimes because they're fat. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the same problems that we see in women. But preterm labor,
0: unusual, I think. Okay. And high blood pressure and things like that. We, I mean, these are things that we are very concerned about in, in women. We don't measure yeah. it in animals. But we don't even look for it. No, well, we don't look for it. But, you know, animals don't smoke. You know, they
3: don't, um, they're taken care of, particularly if they're, you know, if they're valuable. And um, Caref- they have carefully a... Carefully fed. Carefully and, fed, exactly. So it's
0: a completely different lifestyle, if you would. Well, and um, in terms of attending births, um, do veterinarians attend births of uh, in, in cow barns and things necessarily? Sometimes. They do sometimes. Sometimes, if it's difficult. But normally, if it's a normal pregnancy, the,
3: the baby farmer would be will attend. born and the farmer would yep. find farmer. the baby in the yeah, morning, exactly. right?
0: Exactly. Okay. Wow. Well, well, how big of a problem are infections during pregnancy and delivery for humans versus animals?
3: You know, it, it's, well, it, it's becoming more prevalent in women. Um, we have had a series of, it's a, it's a bacterial called group A strep, and we've mm-hmm. had a series of infections. Um, they're starting to be reported around the country. And these are absolutely devastating infections. And in, in our area, we've now had a, have eight women. One of them died. Um, and I've had two personally that I've taken care of because they don't have cancer, but they're difficult patients. So that's why they call me in. But yes, we do see a lot of infections in pregnancy. And this is one of the more devastating
0: ones. Um, so group A strep, is that like strep, the same kind of strep you would get strep throat? It can or, be. Mm-hmm. Really? It can be, yeah.
3: But it's devastating to women, particularly around the time of, of when they give birth. So the majority of these are actually described in women postpartum, re- having recently had their baby, um, probably because of the trauma of childbirth and some you know, other factors. Um, but we do see other infections. We see group b strep. Um, group b strep doesn't hurt the mom so much, but it can hurt the baby. The baby can be born septic, in other words, infected. Um, we see a lot of viral infections that depending on when they are in their pregnancy, can cause either birth defects or other problems with babies. So, infectious d- disease is, is really important in people. It's also important in animals.
0: Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you being here to talk about this. My guest has been Dr. Molly Brewer. She's a veterinarian and also a gynecologic oncologist and a graduate from Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: Gloria Heffernan teaches at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York, and she offers writing workshops at various community organizations. Her new collection of poems, What the Gratitude List Said to the Bucket List, will be published by New York Quarterly Books this year. She has two poems in this issue of The Muse. The first poem pays tribute to the nurse who brushed your hair. We never know which detail will singe itself into memory. Perhaps the sound of the machines all humming different notes. Perhaps the halting breath, the false stops and starts, the fluttering under the eyelids where some dream still lingered, or the sheet you kicked off over and over again while I pointlessly rearranged it to protect your privacy. Perhaps the sound of a phone ringing in the night is all it will take to launch me back to that cubicle where you lay after your last labored breath, the wild hair that spilled across your pillow only moments before, now brushed back from your forehead into a neat coil at the back of your neck, your face serene as a pond in August, and the nurse whose name I never knew wiping her eyes as she called us in to say goodbye." The second poem is called What the Mapmakers Knew, and it reminds us how care is also knowing what not to do. What the mapmakers knew. Beyond this place there be dragons. She dwells in the place the old mapmakers could not chart, the place without names, where waters churn and the open mouths of empty caves gape along the shoreline. All those years telling her children, there are no monsters here. The ritual of opening and closing closet doors, getting down on her knees to prove there were only dust bunnies under the bed. Now she lies under the covers in a room she did not choose, a photo on the nightstand of someone she once knew by name. Her children are scattered east and west. They call every Sunday without fail. I tell them she is well, refer to her chart, relay facts. A wildlife calendar hangs on the wall at the foot of her bed, a long-ago Christmas gift from her daughter in Pittsburgh. A lion presides over a slab of stone somewhere on the African savanna, scanning the horizon. She wakes each morning under his protective gaze. I tried to turn the page once, but she wept like a baby ripped from a dream. So I left it as I found it, in that room. Where it is forever, February.
0: This has been Upstate's Health Link on Air. Brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink On Air, overviews of multiple sclerosis and thyroid disorders. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for
4: listening.